Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled, Compensating for a Shifting World, Evolving Reference Frames of Visual and Auditory Signals Across Three Multimodal Brain Areas. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief Nino Ramirez and author Jennifer Grow. So let's get started. Thank you very much. And Jennifer, thanks so much for participating in our podcast series. And you have contributed a really great body of work on space perception and specifically how different, you know, sensory model modalities are processed in the perception of space. And, and to be totally honest, to me, this is really the most exciting problem in neuroscience. And particularly what fascinates me is the fact that auditory and visual information and other sensory modalities are all processed so differently by the brain and they process in different time scales and different neural pathways, yet we perceive them together. And we also perceive space as unified, no matter whether the space perception is elicited by light or auditory stimuli. And for me, like one example I often think is like, let's say we have a red car going out into the right direction. And, you know, the red color probably will be processed different than the movement and the sound, but yet we see that the red car is going in that direction in space. And, and how does the brain generate time in general? And because we think it's this, it's simultaneously and, and basically how does it generate simultaneity? And even though all these sensory modalities are arriving in different brain areas at different times, so in your paper, you describe that there are also fundamental differences how eye movements and auditory information are processed. You talk about eye-centered, head-centered information that all needs to converge. So perhaps you could begin by telling the listeners about the problem of frames of references and also how you got interested in this fascinating topic. Yes, absolutely. Well, you, you couldn't have described it better, I think. I've been really interested in these differences in how the physical energy that's associated with different sensory systems is transduced and then brought into the brain. And uh, somehow the brain has to synthesize all of this so that we get to where we have a percept that we're really kind of not aware that we're using different sensory systems to, to detect what's happening in the world. And I've been interested in the, the computational underpinnings of this. You know, we, we can know something quite a bit about what are the incoming sensory uh, input signals. And we know something about, you know, what the output looks like, what, what perception, you know, feels like to us and what kinds of behaviors we're able to engage in without even thinking about it. But there's a lot of work that the brain has to do to make that possible. It's the culmination of a few decades of effort uh, from my group um, and, you know, integrating with uh, really interesting findings from a number of other groups as well uh, to try to understand how that happens. Maybe it would be good to refer to what is known, what has been known before your study and what was also not known. Yeah, so um, going back some time, what we know about the sensory input so in the visual system, we know that light is, uh, is coming in uh, to the eye uh, and the optics of the eye uh, create this nice camera-like representation of the pattern of light that's in the visual scene along the surface of the retina. In the auditory system, localizing sound is a computational process. We have to compare uh, sound arrival time across the two ears 
sound loudness differences across the two ears, and evaluate subtle differences in the frequency content of the sound that depend on uh, the angle that the sound is coming from with respect to those little folds in our outer ears. And those cues, uh, so the visual cues tell us where the light is coming from with respect to whatever direction our eyes are pointing. And the um, interaural timing and level difference cues and the frequency spectral cues tell us where the sound is coming from with respect to the head and ears. So hopefully you can immediately see, oh, well, that sounds great, but what if any of these things are moving? So in the case of primates, um, we make you know, robust, frequent eye movements all the time. This comes as a bit of a surprise to uh, many undergrads, which is, which is kind of interesting in and of itself, right? Like we're making eye movements all the time and yet we're barely aware of it. And I find that to be kind of a really fascinating aspect of perception that we often study perception of, uh, from looking at like, how, you know, how are you aware of this and how are you aware of that? But there's this, you know, this whole kind of landscape of perceptual activities, perceptual tasks, sensory processing tasks that we're not aware that we're doing and synthesizing the visual scene uh, by stitching together those snapshots of patterns of light on the retina across eye movements is, you know, one of those things that you're just totally unaware of unless something goes wrong with that process. And you might think, oh, well, maybe this is a small problem if the eye movements are rare or if they're small, but we're making uh, saccadic eye movements about three times a second, and we're covering a range of plus and minus 40 degrees. So these eye movements are just absolutely massive. And, you know, again, yet we're totally unaware of it. So the role of eye movements is important both in, within the domain of vision to kind of uh, stitch together these different uh, views of the visual scene. And it's important for the integration of visual and auditory information, because if you only knew about the timing difference values, you know, a, a sound that is located straight ahead with respect to where my nose is pointing could be either to the left or to the right of wherever my eyes are pointing. So you don't even get it into the right hemisphere unless you're incorporating information about eye movements. So, you know, I think these problems were beginning to be recognized uh, in the field. My personal knowledge and memory of all of this uh, begins in the 80s um, uh, when I was studying some of these things in college. And, you know, I think people were beginning to realize, oh, there's a massive computational problem here of how, how can these raw sensory inputs lead to our perceptual and behavioral experience uh, and a recognition that, uh, that incorporating information about eye movements had to be done somehow. And, you know, one of the early ideas was that you would simply translate signals from one frame of reference into some other frame of reference, and then everything would be fine. So I think there was, there was early thinking that perhaps visual signals would be translated into a head-centered frame of reference. And that would seem to make it possible to integrate with auditory signals if you did that. I think there was a mistaken notion that that would be a stable frame of reference for vision. But in fact, you know, I'm looking at you and you're nodding your head, right? So <laughs> if you had a, a, a frame of reference that was anchored to your head, it would still be moving because the head moves too. So, you know, I don't think uh, in my own mind, I, I uh, remember concluding early on that, you know, a head-centered frame of reference wasn't going to solve the fundamental problem. It would just be a different frame of reference. And, 
so there has been, historically, there's been work both within vision and within the auditory system. Um, I think one of the things that we've done that may be a little different from other groups is that we've looked at both and tried to really compare the frames of reference of both kinds of signals. Um, within the auditory system, this was, I think, one of the first studies, well, within both vision and the auditory system, uh, one of the first brain areas that was looked at for these kinds of reference frame problems was the superior colliculus. And there was a study in 1980 from Larry Mays and David Sparks that looked at visual signals in the superior colliculus and demonstrated that, that these cells have a memory component and that this memory component updates with every eye movement. The neurons have receptive fields. And if you flashed a visual stimulus, not in the neurons receptive field, but somewhere else, but then you had the animal make an eye movement that would bring the location of the receptive field to where that visual stimulus had been the neurons would start firing. So that was kind of a really key indication that the brain is tracking eye movements and it's updating these sensory representations uh, to keep track of where things are now with respect to where your eyes are looking. Fascinating. You know, um, you talked about superior colliculus and I think for the listener, it will be great to better understand the circuitry here. And you look specifically like the frontal eye fields, the medial and lateral interparietal cortices and the superior colliculus, and, and also how does that relate, for example, to your brainstem saccade generator? Maybe can you give us a overview about the circuitry and to give us an idea also where you started to record and why you recorded these areas? I was afraid you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, when the, the way academic papers are written, you, you, tell the story as if you planned it all out in a totally logical fashion. And that's really <laughs> not the case here. This was more pulling on threads, uh, the interaction between, uh, you know, what are the scientific questions and what are the interests of the people in the group and what do they want to pursue? And so, you know, the superior colliculus was, was where my inspiration came from. And when I set up my own lab uh, for the first time in my first, first faculty position, I decided I wanted to um, look at the auditory representation. Um, we already knew at that point from later work from the Sparks Lab from Martha Jay and David Sparks that in the superior colliculus, uh, there's an auditory representation and that auditory representation is shifting and is changing with each eye movement. And so I wanted to know what, you know, what, where does that happen? Is, this, is there a head-centered representation that is projecting to the superior colliculus that is creating this? Um, so we went off into kind of the auditory system proper. And this is not in the paper that we're talking about today, but we looked in the inferior colliculus, which provides input to the, to the superior colliculus. And um, by chance, we were taking a route to the, superior, to the inferior colliculus that took us right through auditory cortex. And so we realized that and started collecting data there too. Um, and so in fairly quick succession, we found that eye movements are affecting activity within areas that we think of as kind of auditory, not multimodal. But the representations were not a clean reference frame. It was, you know, it was clear that the representation was not purely head-centered, but also not purely eye-centered. Uh, and that left us puzzled and wondering about the entirety of the rest of the circuit and whether or not there are places where 
kind of the signals are fully transformed. So if we're talking about auditory, are they fully transformed from some initial head-centered state to some eye-centered state that would be ideal for integrating with, with vision, assuming vision hadn't been transformed? And, uh, you know, what about the visual signals? There were descriptions in parietal cortex that made reference to um, what were called uh, gain fields. And the presumption of, these, of this gain field representation was that it was basically eye-centered, but you had a little bit of eye, eye position sensitivity kind of riding on top of that. And so, but it made it kind of complicated to try to figure out uh, what's actually being encoded in each of these structures. So to get to your question, like what's the network? Um, so the network is very interconnected and there's connections in multiple directions. So there's not a, there's not a super clear information flow. Um, I think most people would say that uh, intraparietal cortex projects to the frontal eye fields and frontal eye fields projects to the superior colliculus. Um, but there are, you know, there are additional connections there such that putting this in a totally logical order didn't make 100% sense. And so at the end of the day, we found ourselves needing to kind of study all of these structures and pull together all of the signals and do it in the same way, you know, same kind of stimulus conditions, same kind of analysis, balanced to not favor eye-centered, overhead-centered, because you can, you can kind of push your results one way or another by collecting more data relating to one reference frame than to another reference frame. So we had to be careful about that. And uh, yeah, that, that kind of gets us to this, this paper, which was, um, so Valeria Caruso is the first author on this. Uh, she's a very talented um, scientist uh, now on the faculty at University of Michigan. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she was really interested in the, in the cortical contributions here. Uh, and it's collaborative work with my colleague, Mark Summer, uh, who uh, has a long track record of excellent research uh, in the frontal eye fields. That is perfect, because I always am interested, you know, the role of your team in these discoveries. So basically, you had different people with different interests coming to unravel your circuitry. And I also love that that you were kind of scared of that question, because I think, uh, you know, it's it's important for for the young listeners among us neuroscientists that, you know, we start a project where we often don't know where it leads us and what, what we need to do. And, and we have to be kind of complexity junkies to enjoy that and, and then make some sense out of it. So I thought your study was perfect for this and uh, how you mastered such an incredibly important topic to get across. Now, you focus uh, on the, the saccades and you talk about three main hubs that you use to study space perception. Could you also elaborate on what you mean with this and, and how it relates to your study? Absolutely. So this paper concerns the superior colliculus, the frontal eye fields, and the intraparietal sulcus. And those were of interest because they have robust visual and auditory representations. Um, some of the other structures that we've talked about are, are mainly, although not 100% auditory, um, but these were really kind of multi-sensory and they all have a kind of plausible to uh, solidly known role in motor control and the control of eye movements. So if these structures, so whatever these structures are doing, they are providing the signal that is just about to go out to the motor system and give you a behavior that has to be accurate, 
you know, regardless of whether or not it's an auditory stimulus or a visual stimulus, and regardless of where the eyes are at the time the stimulus was delivered. So, you know, these are the guys that have to know the final answer. And um, so maybe I should, maybe this is a good moment to kind of summarize what we found. So let me start with the frontal eye fields because that's the new findings that are in this paper. So in the frontal eye fields, um, we looked at the activity that's time-locked to the onset of the sensory stimulus. And we looked at the activity that is time-locked to the saccade that is a response to that sensory stimulus. So we've got two time periods to look at, and we've got two sensory modalities to look at, visual and auditory. Starting with the visual, what we find is that um, there are many neurons that do encode the location of the stimulus in an eye-centered frame of reference, but it is by no means all of the neurons. There are plenty of neurons that are appear to be using some reference frame or representation that can't be clearly categorized as an eye-centered representation. And that is a, a take-home message here. I want people to understand how robust a finding it is that we can't actually characterize the frame of reference of an individual neuron. I think that's an enduring mystery that uh, remains to be solved um, about the brain, why, why those kinds of, of activity patterns are so prevalent. Turning to the motor period, sticking with vision, uh, there we started to see a little more, but not very much more, <laughs> eye-centeredness in the visual representation. It was basically pretty stable. In the auditory, in the frontal eye fields, it's puzzling. It is not as eye-centered as the visual, um, and it doesn't change very much. It gets a little, again, it gets a little more eye-centered around the time of the movement, but basically not that much. So if you look at the frontal eye fields by itself, you're like, huh, that doesn't make any sense, right? You can both at the same time see some evidence that the signals got changed from how they came in. You know, that the visual signals are not purely eye-centered, the auditory signals are not purely head-centered, they're having some kind of negotiation with each other across eye movements, but they haven't yet come into an agreement about what the code is going to be. And this is pretty similar to what we had seen in parietal cortex uh, earlier. So that work was done by uh, O'Daniel Milet Gilman uh, in a collaboration with Yale Cohen. And there too, we had seen you know, most of the signals are not purely eye-centered, not purely head-centered doesn't matter that much whether or not you're talking about the sensory period or the motor period, doesn't matter that much whether or not you're talking about auditory or visual. You know, there's some differences, but they're differences of degree, not in the overall kind. And it's kind of only in the superior colliculus where things seem like they're getting resolved. So in the superior colliculus, again, in the sensory period, you see some signals that are not purely eye-centered. But they're much more eye-centered for vision than they were in the um, parietal or frontal eye field areas. So vision is starting to look kind of eye-centered. Auditory is pretty hybrid. It's Again, it's staying in this kind of not easily characterized as having a native frame of reference to it. But by the time you get to the motor linked activity, the activity that is sort of, okay, just before it goes out you know, to the brainstem uh, circuitry that, that creates this nice temporal pattern of force needed to yank the eyes to a new location and hold them there, um, then you're starting to see kind of a more eye-centered um, frame of reference for the auditory signals. So overall, it kind of looks like they had to get to the same place, 
uh, and they do, but they, they, they take their own time. It's like, you know, like your children, some of them kind of <laughs> grow up a little faster than others. And <laughs> that um, is fascinating. Yeah. But really they get cool. there in the end. And, and, and you can see this, how plastic do you think is this process? Like, I mean, I could imagine that say, if you're operating in the darkness where your vision starts to fade away, that now maybe the auditory processing gets faster than the visual or at bright light, you know, or if you have background noise, have you, do you know anything about it or have you studied this? I think that's a really interesting question. So um, vision has the reputation of being like the expert when it comes to visual, to spatial acuity. Like obviously we have a much finer grained sense of where things are visually than we do auditorily. Um, but only if it's daylight and only if there's nothing between you and the thing that you want to know about. And so, if you have glasses or not, no glasses. Right, right. But, you know, the auditory system is still on duty when you're blinking. It's still on duty when things are behind you or uh, in the dark. Um, so these two senses really have to work together. They're, they're each providing something that the other doesn't have. Um, and I think that to me is one of the most interesting things about uh, how the different senses coordinate with each other. You know, we're, com we're comfortable talking about smell and taste as like an integrated system. And I think vision and hearing are really an integrated system that are uniquely able to, to report on the more distant stimuli in our environment. Yeah, it would be also look interesting to look at evolution or specializations, you know, I mean, like if you're like an a night animal versus your, you know, like a, an owl or, you know, like, I mean, there will be probably huge differences how you integrate these both uh, information or if someone is blind, you know, how one process will take over. So really fascinating. I mean, this brings me kind of to the question of what are the clinical implication or translational implication of your study that we can draw from here? Sure. So just to, to hit your points about evolution, um, you know, here we are, we've picked eye movements with respect to the head. You look around and uh, there's a ton of other uh, ways in which these sensory organs can be moving with respect to each other, like looking at the deer that are, you know, coming through my yard and eating my rose bushes, you know, they're <laughs> constantly swiveling their, their large external ears to gather, you know, additional auditory information. And I, we know nothing practically about, you know, how the brain might be adjusting its auditory inputs uh, to take into account what, you know, where was the ear angled if you're a species that can do that. Yeah, they, I just saw uh, an interesting National Geographic movie where also some have more color vision than others. And the tiger that we think is orange for a deer is not really orange. It's really hitting in, in the bushes way better. So, so basically for them, the auditory information becomes more important than the, the color vision. And it, it's a fascinating question about the evolution. Hey, but you, you didn't address my clinical question. So, so where do we go clinical, from the right. translational side? Right, the clinical question, sorry about that. Yes, yeah, so um, you know, one of the things that I think is so interesting here is that you know, normally this is all working perfectly as far as we know, right? And so, you know, I'm making eye movements and I'm having no trouble at all incorporating, uh, you know, if, if we were meeting in person, I'd be looking at you, I'd be using lip movements to help me understand your speech. And that would be a really useful thing to do. And if I wasn't 
factoring in these eye movements, I wouldn't be able to correctly select the right part of the visual scene to use to help me interpret sound. You know, I, I mean, it would make no sense whatsoever to use, you know, your eyebrows or someone else's lip movements to help me understand the speech. So you gotta be able to kind of mesh these things. I don't think we know when someone is not able to do this, that we don't have clinical tests that are uh, really pulling out or perceptual tests that are really pulling out. Are you just responding to the visual input? Are you just responding to the auditory input? Is there some difficulty in, uh, in linking these two things together? If you're familiar with the McGurk effect, this is a, an illusion where uh, it's a person saying some symbol, uh, syllable like baba, but the audio baba is dubbed to a video of someone saying gaga. And that illusion, um, the illusion that people typically experience is to hear some kind of compromise interpretation like da-da or da-da or la-la, some syllable that doesn't require that the, that the lips you know, have closed uh, in connection with making that sound. So most people experience this, but not all. And, you know, so one thing I'm, I'm kind of interested in is, is uh, to try to understand whether or not this individual variation that's out there, is that related to maybe having something different about how your brain is incorporating eye movements uh, into visual and auditory processing? You know, some folks have difficulty learning to read. Um, more difficulty than others. Is that because there's some challenge that they're experiencing about linking vision and hearing? Because learning to read originally is, uh, you know, you've, you've learned language in, in an auditory fashion, and now you are trying to map visual information onto those sounds. And uh, yeah. yeah. There, there are these studies that, that suggest also that autism is related to, you know, problems with processing time. And, you know, there are these experiments, uh, my colleague, uh, John Welch is doing things like this at Seattle Children's, where they find that that auditory processing be sometimes faster in certain autistic kids and others slower. And you could easily imagine that for an autistic kid processing an object, you talked about the eyebrow, etc., might be way too complex, whereas an object standing there can be much better predicted. So I think there's a lot of uh, implications specifically for, for these subtle, like cognitive issues that, that a lot of kids have. And, and then of course you have the development going on top where all these different areas have to develop at different times and, uh, and you still have to be able to, to handle your environment. So I think it's, it's a very fascinating problem because it really gets at how does the brain generate time and how does it process the time of all these different modalities? So, yeah, I think very fascinating question. And I hope you will, you know, like you, you will venture also into to this question of autism at one point. We'll see. Now, can you describe, so, so when I read your paper, the, the methods are, are daunting. And, and could you describe more in detail, you know, the methods that you use and what challenges you encountered, for example, you know, charge a try variability. And then you, I can imagine you record from different neurons in different areas. And how can you reproduce this? So can you give us an insight into how you tackle these problems? Sure. Yeah. So um, this all begins with training monkeys to uh, 
sit still uh, and make eye movements to the locations of visual stimuli and auditory stimuli. And they, one of the reasons why we choose this species is because they have reasonably similar visual and auditory systems to, to humans. And uh, they're smart enough and motivated enough to enjoy doing these kinds of tasks. And uh, so the basic observation that is kind of under, underlies really all the figures uh, in this paper is if you hold the eyes uh, steady in one particular position and present a stimulus, be it visual or auditory at some other position, and then you repeat that when the eyes are at some other position, do you get the same response or do you get a different response? And everything after that is kind of like, okay, well, let's now try to understand the overall pattern of like, what do you mean by a different response? Like, is it shift, is the receptive field shifting to a new position in space? If it is shifting to a new position in space, is it the same position in space relative to the eyes? Uh, regardless of where the eyes are, that that's kind of what an eye-centered frame of reference uh, is defined as. Um, a head-centered frame of reference would be the head was still, the eyes moved, the receptor field did not move. It stayed fixed in position. So the data is collected with electrodes uh, placed in the brain uh, to monitor the activity of individual neurons. Um, and yes, absolutely, we have to collect a fair number of trials for each neuron because things are a bit variable. So you have to be able to do statistical analyses. And then we have to record from a number of different neurons in these areas because each neuron is, you know, kind of its own thing and they're not all yielding the same kind of signal. And I think this is one of the things that I think is a rich aspect of doing single unit neurophysiology is that you can get a sense of the variability in these representations. You know, if this were an fMRI study, you'd get one answer per voxel of the brain. You, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't see that within that voxel, maybe you had a thousand neurons and most of them were doing this, but some of them were doing this other thing. It would just all get kind of lumped together. So, you know, I think it has turned out that that was a critical element of understanding what the signals are is to understand the variability of these signals across different neurons. I hope that answers that, you. That's great. Yes, uh, Jennifer, one more question. Let's say going uh, into the future, you know, like now development of optogenetic viral vectors in non-human primates would allow you to stimulate certain neuron classes and, and certain neuron areas, etc. How could you envision, you know, tackling this problem now instead of just recording, you know, like manipulating specific neurons, changing the timing. So could you dream of experiments that, that would get you closer to the answers? Yeah, well, so we haven't needed the optogenetics because we've used electrical stimulation in these brain areas uh, to look at those kinds of things. And uh, so an, an earlier postdoc in the lab, Joost Meyer, did a study involving looking at how the eye movements evoked by electrically stimulating in in the superior colliculus, how do those depend on the starting position of the eyes? Valeria, uh, the first author on this paper, has data in frontal eye fields where she's stimulated uh, in connection with the visual and the auditory data uh, stimulus presentations um, and analyzed how, you know, what we think the readout from these structures might actually be based on the pattern of results that we get from that. So, so um, 
Yeah, so we haven't had to wait for the oxygenetic. <laughs> really, really hey, but you, you couldn't inhibit areas. You know, you couldn't yeah, shut and, down neurons. Mm -hmm. But, there, you know, mm -hmm. so one of the things that, that we benefit from is that there's enough topography in at least some of these structures, superior colliculus in particular, that you can do techniques like um, use smaller lidocaine injections. And so there's a, there's a history of looking at some of those questions with those techniques. Much to do, but I'll tell you what direction kind of we're we're headed. That's exactly what I want to okay. hear. You know, what okay, are the next steps from here? Yeah, next step. So, so one of the things that um, we're really interested in right now is like, where does it start? You know, how, where is the first place that eye movements start to alter the kind of native uh, input that's coming in? And uh, we have now worked on this in the auditory pathway. And a few years ago, we discovered that. Uh, it appears that the that the ear is receiving a descending signal from the brain that tells it where the, that the eyes are about to move and what direction and amplitude they're going. What? That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I need to give you a little bit of background on like well, how how would you make that kind of discovery? So, um, the auditory pathway has multiple different motor. Uh, functions that occur within the ear itself. And these are uh, two middle ear muscles uh, and outer hair cells in the cochlea that can expand and contract. And those systems are under the control of descending inputs from the brain, and they can introduce vibration that's not due to incoming sound, but is due to what the brain tells it to do. And you can measure that this is happening by placing a microphone in the ear canal. So basically in both monkeys and humans, we can see that there is a vibration that's occurring, time-locked to the onset of the saccade. Uh, its phase tells us whether or not the eye movement is going to the left or to the right. And the amplitude of the vibration uh, is related to whether or not it's gonna be a big eye movement or a small eye movement. So we think that at least with the regard to the auditory signals that, you know, this process of a coordinate transformation of, of preparing signals to talk to the visual system in a common language is beginning at the very threshold of the auditory pathway. But we don't know how exactly that observation relates to this neurophysiology these findings in neurophysiology. And there's some, there's some interesting differences and we need, to, we need to sort of pull on those threads and see what we can figure out. So, so could you imagine that you could manipulate then these vibrations and, and, and thereby basically unravel how they contribute and disturb? Yeah, I mean, you should be able to measure them and characterize them in a human patient, a participant, play them back counterphase, like a noise cancellation thing and see whether or not the person mislocalizes or misjudges the alignment of a visual and auditory stimulus if you've done that. Um, so wow. that, would, that would be kind of a fun experiment to do. Probably won't so totally naive question. So what, what happens to people that have tinnitus? You know, that they, you know, like you, you have your tones coming in. Do they affect your perception then? Yeah, so there's a kind of tinnitus that is eye movement related. It's called gaze evoked tinnitus. And basically it is, you make an eye movement and you hear a non-existent sound that relates to the eye movement. And we have yet to study any of those patients, but uh, I'm really interested to see what we can figure out from looking at them. Well, I have tinnitus. I would love to, to get studied on that. That's fascinating. And you don't do optogenetics on me. So that's also good. So, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Interesting question. So now what are the 
most important take-home messages that you want the listeners to remember? And both from the topic, but maybe also for graduate students, postdocs, you know, like so as, as an educator, but also as a scientist, what are the take-home messages? Yeah, let me give you two levels of take-home message. One, I want to give a take-home message for people who are in the field and kind of want to know, okay, how should I update my understanding? So what I'd love to have you update your understanding is to realize that uh, in these three areas of the brain, there is mostly not a clear frame of reference for either visual or auditory. And, you know, somehow the brain has to be working with these hybrid frames of reference. Mm. This is an open question about how exactly it's doing this. For the, the you know, person who's a little more uh, distant from the field and just kind of wants to understand how this relates to perception, you know, this, we're understanding, we're peeling back the layers to understand the computations the brain is doing to be able to reconcile visual and auditory space. And even though the answers are complicated, they're nevertheless similar for vision and hearing. And I think that's probably the important factor that evolution is controlling here is maybe it doesn't care whether or not it's eye-centered or head-centered, but it does want them in the same language. And we can see evidence that they're getting to the same language in, in these different brain structures. That is fascinating. Yes. I, yeah, that makes total sense, but uh, it's, it's complicated. My God, <laughs> Jennifer, I learned so much and, you know, next time I do my saccades, uh, obviously of my tinnitus, I will think about all this and probably get dizzy but very, very fascinating. And, uh, and thank you so much for submitting this to Journal of Neurophysiology. And I, I hope the next steps that you lined out come back to us again, and uh, we can continue our discussion on this very fascinating topic. Jennifer, thanks so much. And thank you also to your amazing team that contributed to this. Thanks so much for having me. And yeah, yeah let me give another shout out to uh, the wonderful scientists that I've had the pleasure of working with here, especially Dr. Valeria Caruso, who's really just an amazing uh, scientist and incredible intellect. And anybody who gets to work with her is really lucky. Great. Thank you so much. All Thanks. the best. Bye. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.